What a gift to be together today. Isn't this a great day? Amen. Little Emmett being baptized, people joining us from all over the world online. Isn't that amazing? You're sitting right now with people in Nigeria, in Uganda, in Taiwan, and Zealand. <laughs> people on the lawn. It's a great day to be. I may have, um, I may have mentioned this. You've probably heard some of the story. My Bible, <laughs> Troy, it was stolen. Here's how it went down. Imagine me with a hat on and a pipe. It was May 7. I preached a sermon. You'll remember it. A phenomenal sermon. Afterwards, I set my Bible, as I do, in the front pew. That week, then, we hosted Tulip Time Tourists. Hundreds. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of tourists. So that when I came back to church on May 14 and stood up to preach, I tried to grab my Bible, but it was, it was gone. It was gone. Taken from the sanctuary in broad daylight. It was, it's not my, my devotional Bible, the morning pre-dawn light Bible. It's just my preaching Bible because the, the print is bigger and I can see it more easily. So I may have suggested on May 14 that a Tulip Time tourist stole my Bible. On May 21, I came back to church still without my Bible because it hadn't been returned. And I may have suggested some among you in some conspiratorial act, took my Bible. And you all looked around at each other like a scene from the movie Clue. On May 23, I ordered a new Bible, thinking to myself, whoever stole the one, hopefully will read it and come across that verse in Exodus chapter 20, <laughs> verse 15. And then on May 28, I came to church. I was standing on the porch. And my six-year-old daughter, Ava, with her jean short overalls on, came running to me with something flapping in her hands. Dad! Daddy! I found your Bible! I thought to myself, how can that be? It's been stolen. I said, where'd you find it, sweets? She said, it was in my purple backpack. <laughs> it's not right. So the case is closed. Mostly, I'm offering this as confession. <laughs> I got a text from Luis Torres later that day. As Pillar's Director of Formation and Mission, I encourage you to repent <laughs> and publicly apologize to the church for calling us thieves. <laughs> so I apologize. I got my Bible back. Mine's the one with my name on it. The Bible. This big, huge book. I mean, literally, it's big. Even the most disciplined of us can hardly get through it in a whole year. It's like a tome filled with some of our favorite stories. Stories that shape us and form us and call us into the kind of people God wants us to be. The Bible. Uh, what are some of your favorite Bible stories? Prodigal son story? Maybe this is Rembrandt's depiction of the prodigal son story great story resurrection account i'm guessing my, my favorite can you have favorite resurrection accounts 
It's John 20. It's Mary at the feet of Jesus. Uh, the virgin birth, of course, one of the favorite Bible stories. I'm, I, I love that scene in the book of Revelation where people from every language and tribe and nation all gather around the throne of Christ and worship, singing glory to the Lamb. Those are some of the New Testament favorites. How about some of the Old Testament favorites? Genesis 1, 2, and 3, kind of got to go there. I actually like Genesis 4, too, the Cain and Abel story, fascinating story. Genesis 12, oh boy. Hey, Aves. Uh-oh. What's up, love? Am I in trouble? No. Okay, all right. Oh, Kristen's going to suffer. She's going to be so sad and angry at me. <laughs> hey, love. This is totally unscripted, just so you know. <laughs> you can come, Kristen, because I can't walk out. <laughs> She's dying. Hey, all right, go back to mom, okay? I love you, sweets. Bye-bye. Woo! <laughs> So what, what we were talking about Old Testament, right? <laughs> Old, uh, Genesis 12, uh, God's covenant with Abram. I like the Joseph story with the Technicolor dream coat, you know. Um, the Exodus event. Of course, there's, we, we, we talk big about the Bible, don't we? It's authoritative. Uh, everything we need to know for salvation is contained herein. Uh, what else do we say? All Scripture is inspired by God. And then you come across some of those stories you're not so sure about. Am I right? I don't think particularly some of the violence in the Old Testament leaves our heads shaking and our hearts shaking too. Some of the patriarchal stuff, what do you do with that? Even some misogyny. We kind of just skip over it, right? I mean, ignore it. Stick with our favorite stuff. Well, I'd rather not skip over it. I'd rather lean in. So listen with me to one of those stories. Probably not in your top ten. Probably not what Ava had in mind when she came running. Dad, Dad, I found your Bible. Now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything they owned was held in common. With great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace rested on them all. No one was in need of anything. For as many had houses and lands, sold them and brought the proceeds and laid it at the apostles' feet. Uh, there was a Levite, a native of Cyprus, Joseph, to whom the apostles gave the name Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He had a piece of property, sold it, and brought the proceeds and laid all of it at the apostles' feet. A man named Ananias, with the consent of his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with her knowledge, kept back some of the proceeds. 
and brought only a part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias, Peter asked, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back some of the proceeds? When it was unsold, did it not remain yours? And after it was sold, were not the proceeds at your disposal? Why have you contrived in your heart to do this thing? You didn't lie to us, but to God. And when he heard these words, he fell down and died. The young men came in, wrapped the body, carried him out, and buried him. And great fear seized all who heard of it. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, did you and your husband agree to sell the land at such and such a price? And she said, yes, yes, yes. That was the price. He said, why did you agree together to put the Holy Spirit to the test? The feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately, she fell at the apostles' feet and died. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her next to her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard of it. This is the word of the Lord. <laughs> right. It's Acts 4, 32 through chapter 5, verse 11, if you wanted to find it, if you dare. To find it. I mean, so Acts 1, it's the story of the birth of the church, the formation of the church, the expansion of the church. There's 120 people in a little room, and they're trying to organize their lives after Christ has ascended into heaven. And then you get the high highs of the Spirit's descent, and then the crippled beggar, this is Acts 3, I think, the crippled beggar, he, he stands up and walks. Peter and John so famous to say, silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give you, stand up and walk. And the man walks. And then you get Ananias and Sapphira. Maybe we should Go back to the ones we love. Prodigal son story. For God so loved the world. Revelation 21, 22. What do you do with a story like this one? Should we just skip it? Ignore it? Pretend like it's not there? It's not that inspiring anyway. There are three phrases that I think Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, is trying to weave together. Great power, great grace, great fear. You probably noticed chapter 4, verse 33, with great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And then again, verse 33, and great grace rested on them all. And then chapter 5, verse 5 Great fear seized all who heard it. And then again, it's repeated in verse 11. And great fear seized the whole church. Great power, great grace, 
great fear, great power, power. Luke in Acts is inviting us to confront the realities of power. Who has it and what's it for? Now, this is fascinating to me. Nowhere, so if you, if you were to pick a word to like encompass the entirety of the Bible, it's a tall order. If you, if you were to choose a word, salvation, redemption, love, grace, nowhere in the book of Acts does the word love appear. The birth, the formation, the expansion of the church. And nowhere, not even one time, not even any variation of the, you know, there's the four loves, agape, philios, storge, era. Not one of them shows up in the book of Acts. The charter documents of the church. And nowhere does love show up. Acts is about power. I'm borrowing this from Richard Hayes. Joel Borsma got me onto this. Joel, by the way, will be married on Friday. <laughs> Richard Hayes is a New Testament scholar at Duke. Nowhere in the book of Acts does the word love appear, either as a noun or as a verb. Nowhere in the Lucan summaries of the apostolic preaching do we find any references to love. This foundational account of the early church neither commends love nor exhorts readers to experience or practice it. Even the programmatic accounts of the common life of the early Jerusalem community emphasize unity and the power of God rather than the virtue of love. Christian readers are perhaps so accustomed to thinking of love as the preeminent characteristic of the Christian life that they subconsciously read it into Acts. But to do so is sloppy reading. The absence of the word love from Acts is not merely a lexical fluke. It's a true indicator of Luke's vision of the church. Acts is a book not about love, but about power. Which, of course, doesn't eliminate the call to love, don't get me wrong. But Luke and Acts is after something other. It's about power. Who has it? And what's it for? And how to use it? All of us have power. Some version of it, at least. Whether we think we do or not. Even those of us who feel powerless to break the cycles of sin and patterns of brokenness of our lives still have some version of power. Even those of us who feel powerless to instigate any kind of change in this complicated, complex world still have some version of power. Even the most marginalized among us, constantly feeling on the outside, still have some version of power. Power, we think of it as a lever to play, to get more of what we want, keep more of what we have, and get done what we think ought to be done. We, we think it's about control. We think it's about managing it's power. And Luke absolutely overturns the secular visions of power and what's it for and how to use it. Luke suggests power comes by way of the cross. With great power, they testified to the resurrection. The only way to resurrection is death. And Christ died on a cross. Power demonstrated for us through the cross. 
The only way to find your life, the Bible says, is to lose it. You want that deep down sense of security and contentment? Give up of yourself. Looking for, longing for joy? Give. Everything gets turned upside down with great power. They testified to the resurrection. If I can borrow from Richard Hayes again. Listen to this. One cannot become a follower of Jesus in this gospel's narrative world without surrendering a position of privilege. It's all turned upside down. Not, not, not so that now the powerless have the power. That would be the same game. But so that all of us open ourselves to the one who has the power, Jesus Christ, who sends his spirit to be among us so that we can offer a watching world a different kind of way with great power. They testified to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Great power, great grace, if you can follow the thread Luke is weaving. Great grace rested on them all. Great grace. I don't know what the difference between grace and great grace is, but I'll take great grace. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all my sin. We think of grace as the undoing of a wrong. God is so gracious to forgive me of my sinful past. God is so gracious to put together the pieces of my broken life. God is so gracious to save a wretch like me. Isn't that how the song goes? And it is, and it is, but that's only a part of grace. The wide expanse of grace is so much more and so much grander, not just the undoing of a wrong, but a launching into the good. Not just, hey, in the end, you'll be fine, but rather a call to love and give and serve now, here, humility, kindness, gentleness. Great grace launches us into the good. So, so, there was not a needy person among them. Of course there wasn't. Because a heart embraced by grace gives. So those who had houses and lands sold the proceeds and laid it at the apostles. Of course they did. Because the heart embraced by grace is generous. So Joseph, called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, takes his property. Imagine this. Go ahead and imagine this in your own situation. Takes his property, sells it, and gives it away. Of course he did. Because the heart embraced by grace doesn't take but gives. Great grace. Not just the undoing of the wrong, but the launching into the good. You know what I'm talking about? Great power reorients the way it is. Great grace allows us to live by it. Uh, Richard Hayes again. The community in its corporate life is called to embody an alternative order that stands as a sign of God's redemptive purposes in the world. Anybody interested in an alternative order? How do you think things are going? How does it appear to you? How about a few of us sometime participate in the alternative order? Great grace. Launching us into a different way. 
Uh, you've heard us mention Christy DeSaro. Does that name sound familiar? Christy from Nigeria, northern Nigeria, a predominantly Muslim area where the persecution and oppression of Christians is consistent and brutal. Uh, I think I texted her a week and a half ago. We got this sort of text thread going. This was last Wednesday. Several of our communities are under heavy attack right now. Please pray for God's intervention. They kidnapped two children of a pastor. Our colleague yesterday, we urgently need your prayers. Our strengths are gone. I think then the next day, the pastor's children are still with the terrorists. The number of those displaced are more than 20,000. Six communities are completely destroyed. Not a single house is standing. Some lost their parents, some lost their children, and some both parents and children. The situation is bad. She went on and listened to this. I pray and desire the salvation of the people who are hurting the church, even though it's painful to think that God will forgive them. Please pray for us to continue to represent Jesus in the lives of the people that are affected by being the hands of Jesus to clean their wounds and provide food to them. I don't know about you, but when someone comes at me, even with a harsh word, I retaliate. It's at least my instinct. She's praying for their salvation. She's imagining their forgiveness. She's wanting to be the embodiment of Christ in that place. An alternative order. A different way. The last text Thursday. The truth is I feel very tired. But I know that grace is sufficient. Great grace was upon them all to live a different way, an alternative order. Great power, great grace, great fear. Repeated twice, verse 5, and great fear seized all who heard of it. And then again, verse 11, and great fear seized the whole church. Sometimes I wonder if in our efforts to make God palatable to the masses, we offer a truncated vision of who God is. It's like we provide a Reader's Digest version, so you kind of get the main points, but we never invite people to read the whole story. We insist, God is love, God is kind, God is generous, God is good, God is gracious, God is merciful. All of those things, of course. But God is holy. God is righteous. God is a just judge. There's a, there's a grander picture of our God. I love to preach at weddings. God is love. Those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. I don't preach at weddings from Romans. When you judge others, you condemn yourselves. How about next week? 
I love John 3, for God so loved the world. Not so much Matthew 3, the winnowing fork is in his hand, the axe is at the root of the tree. I love the story of the woman caught in adultery. Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Now go on and sin no more. Not so much the chaff will burn with an unquenchable fire. I'm not trying to scare anybody. I'm just, I'm just wanting us to wake up to the breadth of God. Gracious, kind, loving, merciful, generous. Of course, he sent his own son into the world. Not that one would perish, but that we would be saved. But not just those things. Holy and righteous and just. The God of Ananias and Sapphira is the God of Isaiah. Holy, holy, holy. The God of Ananias and Sapphira is the same God of Matthew 28. When they saw him, they fell down and worshipped. The God of Ananias and Sapphira is the same God of Revelation 1. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. I don't, I'm not trying to scare. I just want us to open our eyes to the full breadth of who God is. Maybe St. Augustine can help. What is the light which shines right through me and strikes my heart without hurting? It fills me with terror and burning love. With terror insofar as I am utterly other than it. With burning love in that I am akin to it. So here's what I thought we could do. I want Jonathan and the ensemble are going to join me here. They're going to lead us in a time of reflection, a song. You're welcome to join them in singing. What I want is you to wonder in your life, is there any part of my life that needs to be opened to the holiness of God? Ananias and Sapphira, it was just a little white lie. They gave most of it. They just kept some of it back. It was just a little white lie. Is there anything in your life that needs to be open to the holiness of God? God is gracious. God is generous. God is kind. God forgives. And he's holy. He's righteous. He's just. So as the ensemble leads us, you take a minute to reflect. Sing along if you'd like. Make some notes in your journal. Close your eyes. Whatever's right. Then Jonathan will lead us to the table.